1: You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk. Hello and welcome to Parliament Matters, the podcast from the Hansard Society about the institution at the heart of our democracy, Parliament itself. I'm Ruth Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Darcy. Every week we're going to be analysing what's going on behind the gothic facade of Westminster.
1: Helping you to stay on top of the key parliamentary issues of the week and what lies ahead.
2: And we'll be explaining how the system works.
1: And hearing about the latest research and innovations in Parliament and politics from influential thinkers and practitioners.
2: Providing new perspectives from inside and outside of Westminster.
1: And we'll be travelling back in time to some of the pivotal moments in Parliamentary history. To help
2: you understand exactly how we've arrived where we are today. Coming up. Revolving doors and a spectacular retread as Rishi Sunak reshuffles his government.
1: And might there be trouble ahead in the House of Lords as the government tries to recover its Rwanda policy after the Supreme Court rules it unlawful?
2: And it's the lawmakers' equivalent of winning one of those golden tickets from Willy Wonka, a chance to enter the private Member's Bill process.
1: For some Mark, it was goodbye to the ministerial car and the red box, but hello to some semblance of a normal life. For others, it's goodbye to the sleep cycle for a while and hello to those bulging briefing books about their departmental responsibilities in their new departments so uh, what did you make of the reshuffle?
2: I think there were an awful lot of surprises in it there was of course the very big surprise of David Cameron second coming of the former Prime Minister reincarnated now as Foreign Secretary and I I can still see that jaw-dropping moment when he suddenly materialised in front of Downing Street getting out of a limousine and all the journalists were thinking what the hell is this so that's one of the big surprises but the sheer scale of the turnover in key jobs, under cover of the sort of flashbang wallop of David Cameron coming back, is going to have, I think, quite big implications for the government and for lawmaking for quite a while to come. I mean, talk us through the scale of it all.
1: Well as you say David Cameron obviously took the headlines but there's there's three other departments where there's a new secretary of state so home office obviously Suella Braverman left and, and and we've got a new home secretary who's who's moved across from the foreign office James Cleverley. department of health and social care we've got a new secretary of state because Steve Barclay has moved to the department of the environment and trees coffee is out of cabinet I think it's interesting three big departments got 50% or more change in their ministerial team so treasury department of health and the Department of Transport. Departments with big responsibilities and some quite big problems on their agenda. And, you know, in terms of health, obviously you've got the winter coming, there's all sorts of issues about the productivity in the NHS, there's some strike issues, you've got the same in the Department of Transport. 50% change in personnel in the Whip's office, which is quite mm-hmm. important in terms of managing. The Parliamentary Conservative Party at the moment. You Um, could
2: imagine that actually one of their key jobs is to manage and massage the egos of those who've been thrown out of ministerial paradise.
1: (laughs) Yes, quite. And then just below 50% change, the Cabinet Office, which of course is the coordinating department at the heart of government. And that has also now got quite a lot of churn. So some big challenges ahead. And it struck me that the Treasury, we're one week out from the autumn statement, and the Treasury, half its ministerial team changes. Now, a lot of those big decisions for that statement will have been made and any that remain are probably going to be a matter for Jeremy Hunt and the the Prime Minister, not for junior ministers. But nonetheless, to have your ministerial changes on that scale just a week out from one of the big, big financial occasions for your department in, in the parliamentary year is significant. And the other thing is changes in terms of who's in in charge of legislation.
2: Very striking was the appointment of Laura Trott, the first member of the 2019 intake who's made it into the Cabinet and she's now the Chief Secretary to the Treasury essentially the person who says no on behalf of the Chancellor, (laughs) the person with control over the government spending purse strings the person who says no Minister you can't have this extra money for your pet scheme, the person who possibly surveys departmental balance sheets and says aha there might be a bit of money we can grab back to the centre there so someone in an absolutely pivotal role and it's a hell of a test to come straight in in that job where you're negotiating often with much more senior and much more established ministers over the stuff of life to them the need to get cash to the programs that they want to implement
1: yeah absolutely and then we've just had the king's speech we've had several days of debate in parliament on on that legislative agenda And we've now got a number of those bills have got new ministers.
2: Yeah, I mean, housing. Rachel McLean, the housing yep. minister, that has been replaced. We now have the 16th housing minister since 2010 in the shape of Lee Rowley, who interestingly was also the 13th housing minister since 2010 because he briefly had the job a little while ago. And that's with the Renters' Reform Bill due in front of a committee for detailed scrutiny uh, in the coming days. Housing being one of the absolutely critical policy areas where the government's desperate to build more. It was talking about you know promoting the bill and stopping the blockers and the housing minister's job is literally to do that and once again it's all changed and they're almost installing a revolving door in that particular ministerial office you imagine
1: yeah and it's not the only one i mean the tobacco legislation in the uh the king's speech the minister who was in charge of that i think it's neil o'brien he's now out so somebody else has got to come into that and of course home office you know they had the lion's share of the bills, they've got, what, four or five, and there's going to be a new one now because of the Rwanda legislation that it looks like the government's going to bring forward to deal with the Supreme Court decision this week. So you've got ministers who are going to be in charge of this legislation, who were not involved in the process of determining the policy detail, the drafting, and so on, and are now going to have to pilot these bills through Parliament. And their ability to respond to MPs' questions, to the scrutiny that's going to be undertaken, particularly at committee stage, they're going to have to get on top of those briefs incredibly quickly. It's the parliamentary good governance...
2: scrutiny, Jim, but not as we know it. And and, and the, the, kind of the good governance think tanks bang on about yeah. this endlessly, that constantly changing the ministers in charge of things just means that nothing gets done. Not only do ministers have to kind of read their way into what are often very intricate policy briefs. Sometimes if you're a minister and you feel you haven't got long to make your the way you do it is by overthrowing the policy of the previous minister so it can mean sort of stop go policy making as well not exactly what you want you'd think for a government that's desperately trying to pull things together and make sure it has something to show for its efforts for the voters when an election's a year or so down the road at the most.
1: Yeah. One of the appointments, though, that took my eye, and it kind of relates to you know, a counterpoint to a lot of the arguments that this reshuffle is caused by, you know, the sort of political manoeuvrings for leadership positions, not perhaps in this parliament, but in the next one, um, was the appointment of Andrea Ledson in the Department yes. of Health and Social Care, because she's a former cabinet minister. She is somebody, of course, who ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party against Theresa May. And uh, she's taken a junior role, the most junior role, in the Department of Health and Social Care. Now, because it's it's the policy area that she cares passionately about, and she's been working on, like a government czar, on early years education and, and support, she's taken this role in government, so has an opportunity to take that agenda forward. But I thought it was just interesting that you know somebody is prepared to take a more junior position in order to take forward an issue that they have worked on for years.
2: That was a very interesting moment there, because Andrea Ledson, I can remember, going to sort of launches of policy documents she was doing as a backbencher in the early Cameron years. So this is something she's quite genuinely been campaigning on for a very, very long time. And you'd imagine someone of her experience going into a position like that may have just wanted some assurances that her agenda was going to get taken seriously, even if she was trying to push it through from, as you say, really quite junior level.
1: Yeah. Um, and I suppose she's also a good sort of, you know, solid pair of experienced hands for the Department for Health and Social Care, which is now under new leadership with a cabinet minister who's not got that much experience oh, or has no, has no experience at, at Secretary of State level.
2: You, you do wonder what the dynamic's going to be like there at ministerial meetings but we shall wait and see. Another feature of the, the reshuffle is is the departure of some quite surprising middle-ranking ministers. People you might have imagined and indeed they might have imagined were on a sort of smooth upward course to cabinet office. Uh, Jeremy Quinn who is in the cabinet office at quite a senior level in charge of civil service reform. Neil O'Brien we've already mentioned up and mm-hmm coming health minister former think tanky very highly regarded by lots of people they've they've kind of announced that they're going voluntarily because they want to get back into constituency business jesse norman another veteran minister is another example of that george freeman who's a science minister who actually david cameron once gave a sort of bespoke job on minister for life sciences to to try and um, create a whole new area of government policy and i'm not quite sure what's going on here i can't genuinely believe that they all wanted to go back to their constituencies and do casework
1: well perhaps not i mean some of them just i think some just tired and exhausted frankly um particularly somebody who's been in office for quite a number of years there's some suggestions that you know they're looking at the polls and they're thinking ahead and you know, not sure when the general election is going to be. There's some suggestions that they might want to get out sooner rather than later so that they avoid some of the conflict of interest issues around the the requirements that will be yeah. imposed on them as a, as a former minister if they lose their seats in terms of taking new jobs. So the sort of the Advisory Council on, on Business Interests for Government Ministers has a period when they've got to avoid sort of engaging with government or lobbying or anything of that sort. And obviously the longer they're out of office, or so the, the earlier they go before the election the easier it will be to get post the other side of the election if they do lose their seats.
2: Sometimes we'll have to wait for the memoirs to find out exactly what was behind <laughs> some of these because they, they have this rather opaque exchange of letters of the Prime Minister where everything's jolly wonderful.
1: Yes, I may, I may be being a little bit cynical, but <laughs> we will see.
2: But, of course, the big one, the flash and bang and whiz that really caught people's imagination was the sudden appearance of david cameron back in the government as foreign secretary and this sent everyone scurrying for their sort of boys book of political (laughs) precedents to see if there were any other examples of a former prime minister coming back into government this way and of course there are
1: you have to go back to lord carrington in the thatcher government 1979 to find a foreign secretary who's in the house of lords course it's the first former prime minister to go to the lords since margaret thatcher and i think one of the criticisms of recent prime ministers is that they've not stuck around parliament to lend their experience to the institution
2: theresa so may being the honorable exception the honorable
1: exception i suppose liz tross is still there but um we will see how long and um he's coming back now into the lords he's actually i think the fifth former prime minister to return to cabinet having ceased to be Prime Minister, um, and the last one being Alex Douglas Hume.
2: That that was quite an interesting one. So Alex Douglas Hume, who'd been around in politics for an awful long time Mm. by the time he became Prime Minister. I think he was once Neville Chamberlain's Parliamentary Private Secretary, so that's how far he went back. He actually had to renounce his peerage and contest a seat in the Commons in a by-election so that he could then become Prime Minister. Confusingly, he'd been Foreign Secretary, but from the House of Lords in the early 60s under Harold Macmillan. Then he came back in and was Prime Minister for a while, remained an MP, Mm. and then in his second term as a Foreign Secretary under Edward Heath, he was doing it as an MP, so it all got slightly confusing. And
1: Ted Heath had been effectively his deputy as Foreign Secretary when he was in the Lords in the Macmillan government. Ted Heath had been his, his deputy in the Commons, So there was a sort of symmetry. (laughs)
2: You can imagine one of those Star Wars riffs now. You've taught me well, Obi-Wan, now I am the master.
1: Yeah, quite. So, yes, it took took everybody by surprise. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't quite know what to make of it. I think the idea that this is going to change somehow the political fortunes of the Conservative Party seems to me a bit unlikely. He Uh, has a lot of baggage.
2: Yeah, well, indeed. And I also think that people in Parliament incredibly overestimate the impact that ministerial appointments and small changes in the SW1 pecking order have on the outside world. I'm not sure that many votes, if any at all, will be particularly changed either way by the arrival or departure of David Cameron. So... I'm a bit cynical about it, but from a parliamentary point of view, it's not as if the foreign affairs is a quiet area at the moment, so I think special arrangements may be needed there. I wouldn't be surprised to discover that David Cameron had very quickly picked up the phone to Alicia Cairns, who's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in the Commons, and offered to do a a monthly turn in front of her committee, just to make sure that MPs were getting a chance to, to question him directly.
1: Yeah, well, the Speaker's already indicated in a statement to the House earlier in the week that he wants both the government and his officials to go away and consider the ways in which the Foreign Secretary can be held to account by MPs. Because obviously, being in the Lords, he can't speak in the Commons, in the, in the Commons Chamber, so he can't participate in debates, he can't respond to urgent questions, can't make ministerial statements after you know major international gatherings or when crises happen. He can appear before the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, as you say.
2: But there's also the possibility that was floated when Lord Mandelson and Lord Adonis were running government departments that maybe some way could be found where MPs could directly have a question time with them, maybe in Westminster Hall or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wrote an op-ed for the House magazine, the sort of Parliament's in-house magazine this week. Um, We'll put it in the show notes, uh, revisiting that, that issue. So back in 2009 the Speaker then, John Burko, had raised the same issues about the appointment of Mandelson and, and Andrew Adonis and, and how they were going to be held accountable. Because I mean, so there's a whole debate about whether it matters for, for David Cameron because it's a great office of state, as opposed to their positions, which were not. But, I mean, Peter Mandelson was effectively the de facto Deputy Prime Minister at the time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they're huge spending departments. And so there were concerns then, back in 2009, about what could be done. And um, the Procedure Committee looked at this in the House of Commons and came up with a proposal that was essentially twice in a session, the Secretary of State from the Lords should come to the, to the Commons and should take questions to 45-minute sessions in Westminster Hall, which is sort of the, the second chamber, if you like, it's sort of off off to the side of the main chamber, just in Westminster Hall itself, doesn't have division lobbies, so it only has debates, doesn't have any, you know, votable business. Now, I, I think, frankly, for the Foreign Secretary, at a time when it's, tur- you know, we're living through a turbulent time, I don't think it's really going to work for him to be available twice a session. We live in the, an age of the urgent question. In, yeah, in, in Topicality in the Commons Chamber matters, And as as Lord Carrington found when, unfortunately, the Falklands War crisis uh, broke out, it was a real disadvantage to him to being in the Lords and not in the Commons. At the end of the day, if a crisis happens, who do MPs want to speak to? They will have an established deputy in Andrew Mitchell, the former International Development Secretary, close ally of David Cameron. He's going to represent the government in foreign affairs in the Commons. But if there's a crisis, do they want the mug key or the organ grinder?
2: I think that what they want is definitely to hear from the Foreign Secretary and I think that what they're very, very keen to do is find a mechanism that allows the Foreign Secretary to be brought before them in whatever way and something like uh, the proposal you've just outlined may well be something that they simply can't avoid having, especially when you've got so many live international crises at the moment and who knows how many more might suddenly appear.
1: Well, I think one option is they say actually Westminster Hall is just not good enough and it's certainly not twice a session. Perhaps he should come into the chamber for certain pieces of business, not to be there on a permanent basis, but but for specific items of business. However, lots of MPs back in 2009, never mind today, lots of MPs were really unhappy about that, felt that only MPs should be in the chamber answering questions. And they were worried that if they allowed that, it would encourage the government to think that it was okay. to create Secretaries of State in the House of Lords because the, the problem of accountability would go away. They didn't want to legitimise this idea um, of, of creating Lords Ministers. To they've, got to dec- of state.
2: they've got to decide which of those two factors worries the most, lack yeah. of accountability or yeah. bringing the, the horror of bringing non-MPs into the Commons yeah. Chamber. But one way or another, some kind of decision is going to have to be made pretty rapidly, I would have yeah. thought.
1: Yeah. And um, I mean, the other thing about David Cameron hasn't been talked a lot about is is the baggage he has as, you know, somebody in terms of his foreign affairs record. It's important to remember, I think, you, yes, he's he's known obviously about the, the Brexit referendum. There's the whole deb- debate about whether the intervention in Libya in 2011 was successful, was a good idea, was a good judgment call. But for me, the one that stands out is the 2013. So it's the 10th anniversary since the vote on whether or not to engage with allies in the bombing of Assad's forces in Syria after they had dropped chemical weapons and Cameron took that vote to the House of Commons he put his judgment to the House and said I think this is so important that we should risk blood and treasure putting our armed forces in harm's way and the House of Commons rejected it, his his judgment.
2: It was an utterly extraordinary moment and One of the things about it is that everyone sort of brushed it off. It was like a sort of dinner party faux pas. This was a prime minister who said, we're going to war here. And the House of Commons said no. And then he sort of picked himself up, dusted himself down. And it was as if nothing had happened, really. And you would have thought that it was a resignation issue.
1: Well, I assumed that that night that it would be because I, I just couldn't contemplate the idea that a prime minister, having put his judgment on the line and having it so significantly rejected by the House of Commons, would just carry on as if it was any other old policy, completely normal. I mean, he was the first prime minister since Lord North in 1782 to lose a vote on military action. Wow! You know that, that it was, that really it, is quite. Yeah, a I mean, it was it was a significant significant setback. If you remember, of course, you know, it had, I think, a knock-on effect in terms of our international reputation as a reliable ally. There are some who think that it, it dealt a, a significant blow, if not a death blow, to the to the whole principle of, in foreign affairs, of the responsibility to protect. Many people think subsequently that what happened in Syria, the terrible things that have gone on there since, happened in part as a result of that decision because a red line had been drawn by the Obama administration, he then felt that he couldn't put the issue to Congress because Parliament had rejected it Yes, here. I remember
2: the headlines, the British aren't coming.
1: Yes, and then there was the sort of perception that Assad could get away with it and pressed on.
2: And of course there is plenty of other Cameron baggage as well. The the, the golden era of Britain's relationship with China that he and George Osborne proclaimed for a while. And I, and I do think that there is a, a kind of generic problem with bringing back an established senior statesman who's written their memoirs because every time David Cameron says or does anything, we've got several hundred thousand words (laughs) of what he thinks about every subject under the sun that can be consulted. Has he changed his mind? Does he really believe that? It's all there in black and white. Uh, And I should imagine that the Cameron memoirs have suddenly come off the remainder shelves and become a vital tool for all opposition researchers.
1: Yeah, and the other issue, of course, we were talking earlier uh, in an earlier episode about standards, parliamentary standards, the proprietary issues around some of the things that he's been doing, engaged in since he became prime minister, the, the whole Greensill scandal. And of course, there's been questions about what he's been doing in terms of lobbying foreign governments and lobbying for foreign interests, particularly his um, close relationship with some of the Chinese ministers and, and, and business people and what the implications of that are. So this is something that the, the opposition and the media are going to have a magnifying glass on.
2: And, of course, just as Rishi Sunak was getting a few fragments of semi-favorable publicity and at least a bit of a wow factor out of the David Cameron appointment, along comes the detonation of Suella Braverman. That morning, he had sacked her as Home Secretary. David Cameron then appeared and suddenly everyone was talking about David Cameron. The next day, Suella Braverman's resignation letter emerges and, blimey...
1: I think it was worse than Geoffrey Howe's uh, resignation uh, statement, wasn't it?
2: I mean, it was nuclear grade, basically saying, first of all, that Rishi Sunak had made a series of policy promises to her in order to secure her support when he finally replaced Liz Truss in that uncontested, as it turned out, Mm. leadership race, which is interesting enough, and everybody wants to see the letter that he's apparently signed, perhaps in blood, to Suella Braverman. For yeah. that. does it exist I mean, does, well, does it does it I exist what exactly does it say secondly she's saying that he's a weak leader she's saying that his style of government was so bad that he can't seem to take vital decisions and so she was seriously stirring the pot and I, i'm told that quite a lot of conservative mps on the right of the party are now basically waiting to see what the government is going to do about its rwanda policy this whole policy of moving migrants to Rwanda which was ruled as unlawful by the Supreme Court and if they are not satisfied with the government's response to that Supreme Court ruling and any new legislation that might come out of it then kapow they are going to do something. I don't know what but they're going to do something.
1: So we're already hearing that, um, you know, the, the famous letters into the 1922 committee to uh, express concern about the Prime Minister and... Um,
2: as we were discussing with Philip Norton just the other week.
1: A, as we were, yes. Yeah. So um, letters, letters in to Sir Graham Brady... It's wanting, only
2: half a dozen, though, at the moment, isn't yeah. it? It's is hardly going to stop the Prime Minister in his tracks.
1: No, and there's probably half a dozen at any one time, I suspect, in the Conservative Party in <laughs> recent years, such, such as the volatility. Um But uh, we talked then about it being a plotter's charter. You know, they can do this in secret. You know, Andrea Jenkins, one of the MPs for one of the lead seats, she's been open about her position, but there'll be others who haven't. So we'll have to see. It seems to inconceivable to me that that could go anywhere and that they'd mount a serious challenge, but um, some pretty deaf things have happened that we didn't expect over, over recent years.
2: Well, absolutely. The rule rulebook's been rewritten several times on that. But uh, the one factor that may be scaring Conservative MPs is a couple of recent opinion polls, which have showed their party below 20%, Labour lead approaching or at 30%, which is close to electoral annihilation territory. Now, they're only opinion polls, but... Uh, whatever the situation there, a few more of those may absolutely scare the living daylights out of Conservative MPs who might decide, well, it may look ridiculous, but it might just uh, save a few of our skins.
1: He, you know, he, he's looking ahead for the next few weeks. I mean, he's got a difficult few weeks ahead with, uh, with things like the, the Covid inquiry. He's got to appear before the Covid inquiry. You've got Boris Johnson to appear before the Covid inquiry. Matt Hancock. I mean, you know, who knows? What's going to come out from all of that? So it's all it's all potentially destabilising.
2: And right at the fulcrum of this is what are they going to do in response to that Rwanda judgment? And there is talk now that the government is going to try and bring in emergency legislation. It wasn't announced at Commons Business Questions this week, so... It may not appear for a little while yet, but frankly, if the Home Office is any good, they would have been working something up on this. There would be at least a prepared draft that ministers could take a look at and launch into the Commons fairly rapidly, zap it through the Commons in a day or maybe two days, and then send it over to the House of Lords. But uh, as we've been hearing, there might be trouble ahead if it does go to the House of Lords and peers don't like what's in it. Well, we've left our studio and popped over to the law offices near the temple of Lord Anderson of Ipswich. David Anderson, one of the crossbench lawyers in the House of Lords. We were going to start by asking him about his new bill to beef up the system for propriety and ethics in public life and public appointments. But before we get to that, David, I wanted to ask you first of all about the possibility of a bill from the government, emergency legislation in effect to remedy their defeat in the Supreme Court over the Rwanda scheme for moving uh, migrants to Rwanda. Do you think their lordships are going to accept that with open arms if it's a bill that says Rwanda's a safe place or if it seeks to take the UK out of the European Convention of Human Rights and various other international agreements
0: in some way? The government has two ways of fixing this problem. It seems to want to do both. The first is by negotiating a treaty with Rwanda which remedies the defects the Supreme Court has identified. don't suggest that would be a simple business at all, but there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't do it. In fact, they did the same thing with the Abu Qatada case, if you remember that, 10 or 12 years ago. What the other proposal seems to be about is a bill before Parliament that would ask us to declare that Rwanda is, and presumably will in all circumstances remain, a safe country – Or perhaps it will say that if the Secretary of State decides it to be safe, then that assessment shall not be questioned in any legal proceedings, what we call an ouster clause. Now, there have been ouster clauses in the past. They're always problematic from the point of view of the rule of law because their purpose is to insulate or immunise the executive from review of the lawfulness of their actions by the courts. This one, I think, would be particularly serious because of the stakes involved. I mean, you're looking at the safety of individuals who are liable to be persecuted, ill-treated, tortured, maybe even killed if they're refooled from Rwanda to another dangerous country. And it doesn't seem to me that that is at all an appropriate subject for Parliament to opine on. That is something for Secretary of State, originally to decide, subject to review by the courts who can look painstakingly, as the Supreme Court did, at the evidence on the ground. And I don't think you could legislate to pretend that something is one thing when, in fact, it is another. And I very much hope that if that is what the bill says, then we won't agree to be complicit in it.
1: So, David, one question is whether the House of Lords will try and delay or indeed reject the bill, that they will not agree, for example, to give it a third reading. So the, the government's indicated it wants to pass it as emergency legislation, fast-track it, which suggests that it would go through the House of Commons quite quickly, potentially all stages in a day, then go to the House of Lords. Do you think that you know the House of Lords would be of a mind to essentially re- reject it?
0: Well, the House of Lords, of course, doesn't have one mind, nor in my experience is it always particularly organised, even in the face of these very significant bills. Of course, normally we would wait until report stage before we actually voted down a bill or a part of a bill. But this isn't a bill that was in the manifesto, so the convention doesn't apply, whereby we give it a second reading. And if it really is a short and simple bill on a point of principle, then depending, as I say, on what it actually says, I wouldn't at all rule out the possibility of quite an early vote.
2: Wow, well, I mean you're saying here that you could throw this thing out at the first possible chance at second reading.
0: Well it's it's possible. I mean there, there is no convention preventing us from doing it. But a lot would depend on the nature of the bill. Certainly if there is something there that really needs to be discussed and if there are two respectable views, then I'm quite sure we wouldn't do that. You know, we, we would want the government to have a chance to put its case as well as it could. A lot, of course, will also depend on the view taken by the opposition parties, because crossbenchers, however cross they may be, can't do anything in reality without the help of um, both the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. It's only in that way that you can get the majority you need to reject a government proposal. If that happens,
2: then we're in a full-on peers versus the people moment, aren't we? I mean, this could almost be a trigger for a general election.
0: Well, that might be one of the factors that, uh, that causes people to be cautious. But I'm afraid you're, you're talking to a crossbencher. I don't look at these things very politically. I'm not adept in the, in the ways of politics. I think the reason people like me are there is to try and identify when something just won't do and then to say so. And to my mind, it really isn't much more complicated than that.
2: Okay, well, let's turn to your private members' bill in the House of Lords, the Public Service Integrity and Ethics bill. And as I understand it, the aim of this is essentially to beef up the various systems that deal with things like ministerial conflicts of interest, investigating them, overseeing what ministers, special advisers, senior civil servants are allowed to do after they leave office.
0: You've got an independent adviser on ministers' interests, a so-called ethics adviser. You've got a public appointments commissioner and you've got an advisory committee on business appointments. And the point of the bill is to put all three of those very necessary posts into statute.
2: And what's the problem that that solves?
0: Well, at the moment, they are creatures of the executive, and their job is to oversee the executive. So, for example, the Prime Minister's ethics advisor is only allowed to start an investigation if the prime minister agrees that that's a good idea. Now, if that investigation is, for example, into the prime minister or touches on somebody very close to the prime minister, it seems, I think, to a lot of us that it would be sensible to give that advisor some independent power. But by putting it in statute and by putting the codes that they administer into statute, you make it more difficult for the executive to meddle with them Something one would have hoped they would never want to do, but I think experience over the last couple of years suggests that you you can't rule that out. And I think it's right, since the Executive is, at the end of the day, accountable to Parliament, that Parliament uh, should have a proper say on what these rules are and how they should be enforced. What the Bill is doing is giving effect to recommendations of the Committee on Standards and Public Life, which were made back in 2021, Um, The Government's response to that report has been frankly pretty underwhelming. The uh, Committee took the view that the degree of independence in the regulation of the Ministerial Code, public appointments, business appointments and indeed appointments to the House of Lords, though that's outside the scope of my bill, falls below what is necessary to ensure effective regulation and maintain public credibility.
1: As a peer, David, you get a chance once a session to apply for a private member's bill. There's lots of issues you could have picked up. Why this one in particular for you?
0: Well, there's a sort of fiction that... um... (laughs) We all um, pick these issues, draft the bills ourselves, and of course the reality is that very often we're helped by other people, and it may even be that other people have worked up a proposal. This, if I may say so, was a Rolls-Royce proposal, and I can say that because I had nothing to do with it in its origins. It was uh, drafted by Daniel Greenberg, very experienced former parliamentary counsel. It has the backing of uh, not only Spotlight on Corruption, uh, but it's had help from the Constitution Unit and people from the Institute for Government and so on. So it's a very considered attempt to remedy a real problem. To be absolutely frank about how it came my way, it was originally earmarked for Lord Judge, the former convener of the crossbench, Peers, who very, very sadly died recently. And um, he was kind enough to ask me to take it on because um, he didn't have the, the bandwidth to do it.
2: So this is a House of Lords private members' bill. House of Lords private members' bills are often quite extensively debated, knocked into shape in the House of Lords but they almost never actually proceed into law of themselves. The ideas might be picked up and put into something else, but of themselves, they, they don't go anywhere. So what are you hoping to accomplish by getting this onto the floor of the House of Lords, if you manage that with possibly an election looming?
0: Well, I have a first reading on the 7th of December. That's a formal stage, but it will at least mean the bill is before the House. And I finish sufficiently high up the ballot that there is at least a decent chance that we will have a second reading debate, which will focus, I think, attention and focus arguments at a very important time, because the parties are... I assume drafting manifestos ready for the next election. They're going to have to work out what they do about this stuff, and some parties have expressed interest in, in going further along these lines. So whether or not they pick up this specific bill, in a sense, is not the point, at least, at least for me. The point is whether they pick up the ideas and whether they run with them. At the moment, we have a, a, an ethics advisor to the Prime Minister who is not free to initiate investigations of his own free will. He needs the consent of the Prime Minister to do it. Seems to me, I think, to a lot of people that that really isn't acceptable anymore. And it's the sort of aspect that will be tightened up uh, by a bill that gives him statutory force, gives his code statutory force, and therefore protects it better against the vagaries of political leaders and the political process.
2: So the complaint here really is that the existing systems are too much the creature of the government, too much under their control. The government writes the rules, doesn't have to amend them in the light of day, appoints the people who oversee those rules, and indeed can
0: switch them on or off at the the wall, as it were. The existing system regulates the executive and is entirely controlled by the executive, and that might not matter when we were all good chaps, in, in Peter Hennessy's um, famous phrase. Uh, sadly, it matters now, and I think we've seen over the last couple of years why that matters. And uh, by giving it statutory force, you know, we're not legalising it, bringing in the courts, uh, making it into a different sort of system. We're just strengthening the system, sharpening up the powers, and making sure that the codes uh, are codes that can be debated in Parliament, and not just by the executive. <laughs>
2: David Anderson, Lord Anderson of Ipswich. And talking of private members' bills, the Commons launched its private members' process this week. There's a kind of ballot, it's, it's more like a raffle, really. A ballot suggests a vote, but it, it, it's MPs put their names down. Parliamentary bingo. Uh, yeah, absolutely, there's a sort of bingo-calling act in which the senior deputy speaker... Dame Eleanor Lang pulls numbered bingo balls out of a jar and announces the numbers and then a name is announced and the person there wins. Not the law of their choice exactly, but a bit of debating time potentially for the law of their choice. The higher you are up the list, the more chance you get. If you're at top, you get the the opening slot on the first Friday allocated for private members' bills to bring in the bill of your choice. The first seven on the list all get an opening spot on a day allocated to private members' bills. Those further down the list kind of fill in behind. And this is where the weird time factor comes in in all this, because if you're the second bill on the first private members' bill day, you may not be reached. Because if the, if the debate on that, Bill, is so controversial that it goes on all day, well, tough luck, you've lost your chance. It's a very, very weird system, uh, very, very hard to understand, especially for sort of Westminster outsiders who've never quite seen anything like it. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery, shrouded in an enigma or whatever. There's a, there's a kind of element of sort of Harry Potterism, Hogwarts, a mystery about it all.
1: Basically, it's, it's legislative time for backbenchers who want to take up a policy issue of their choice. It can't be a big spending issue because they can't have, you know, a massive government expenditure attached to it. So it tends to be a niche social policy, perhaps a, a technical change to the law that make a real difference. Um, something that's of interest and, and concern to their constituents. The top 20 who emerge from the ballot... Mulliner has drawn, they will be inundated with phone calls from campaign groups and lobbyists urging them to take up their proposal for a change in the law. It's the legislative equivalent of winning Willy Wonka's golden ticket for legislators. It's, you know, your chance to get your legislative proposal debated. But the important thing is, Although there's dedicated time on Fridays, the procedures are not the same as they are for government bills. And this is where it gets complicated because Uh MPs can talk them out. One MP alone, if they object, can talk out a bill.
2: The time factor is the really weird bit of this process. Essentially MPs can speak as long as they want in these debates. In in the rest of the time in the Commons they've probably got two or three minutes for Mm. a backbench MP to make a speech in an ordinary debate. Here you can go on pretty much forever and this is the secret weapon for those MPs who regard most private members bills as sort of flabby, vexatious nonsense that shouldn't be polluting the statute book and there are a large number of particularly conservative backbenchers who take this view that you should just stop encrustulating this legislation onto the statute book and what they do is they just talk as long as they go on without a bit like just a minute without hesitation deviation repetition the chair can't stop them they can just go on pretty much forever and as long as their voice holds out and as long as they can remain standing the chair has no option but to let them continue and there have been examples of MPs who've waited till the, some, the, the the deputy speaker in the chair changes over and then has pulled out the bottom part of their speech they've already uttered and read it again and no one's any the wiser because they're all so stupefied with boredom that it's very hard to notice that's the key way of stopping these bills just keep talking till the available debating time runs out and badabim you've stopped a bill you don't like
1: yeah, the other thing is, is not just speech limits, but it's also the fact that programming doesn't apply to the bills. So unlike government bills, where you have a set amount of time that's that's been agreed by the House about how much time should be spent on it, that's not the case with private members' bills. So only the first bill on the order paper on a Friday is actually guaranteed to be debated. And then what happens to the others depends on the orchestration of, of procedures. And this is where the fact it's held on Fridays comes into play because obviously Fridays is a constituency day for most MPs. But actually, on private members' bill Fridays, procedures around how many MPs are needed in the House for a motion. So if there are less than 40 MPs in the House early on and an MP doesn't like a bill, they can try and move a motion that uh, the House do sit in private, for which they only need 40 if that were to go through, then they stop that private members' bill being debated and move on to the next one on, on the order paper. Or, you know, the, the closure motion towards the end of I, the debate.
2: The, the one way a private members' bill which has a bit of support can actually bust through a filibuster tactic where people just keep on talking. You have to get 100 MPs to vote in support of a motion that the question now be put obviously you've also got to win the vote so if 200 MPs voted against it it mm-hmm. wouldn't happen but you've got to get at least 100 MPs voting for that to happen and then if the, if that vote is won then you take the substantive vote right then and there. The difficulty with that is that the chair won't entertain such a motion until debate's been running for quite a yeah. while so you're starting at 9.30 on a Friday they probably aren't going to be prepared to take that motion until 12:30 or so say and at that point you can bust the filibuster but it's quite hard work to do it
1: yeah and 100 MPs are needed so yeah. you have had to have campaigned and planned and managed your numbers to make sure you've got enough of your colleagues who are willing to support you in the house that day On a Friday, and that's the difficulty because a lot of them are not there on Fridays Mm. and they have to, you know, give up constituency commitments. Especially as a general
2: election approaches, it's going to get harder and harder to do that. I I have seen private members' bills defeated because they've only managed to get, you know, 87 MPs voting for a closure motion. And once that's happened, the the filibusters just get up and resume their speeches as if nothing had happened, but possibly with a slight smirk playing on their lips.
1: Yeah, and the other thing you can see is if you watch in the chamber... Um, what's going on you know you can see the whips moving and sort of you know sitting down with particular MPs and there's clearly an orchestration of this oh, behind absolutely. the scenes.
2: And Actually the, the point about the, the, the role of the whips particularly the government whips is it, they're becoming increasingly important in this process. In the last round of private members bills 16 were passed but almost all of those 16 were measures that the government wanted and had kind of passed on to individual MPs not necessarily just conservatives by the way democrats snp mps labor MPs picked up little bits of government legislation that they felt they could support in order that they 've got a bit of law with the, kind of their fingerprints on it so there was a kind of self assembly employment bill that was passed as bits of bods of private members bills on measures like carers leave and protection from sexual harassment a whole load of issues that the government had planned to deal with in its employment bill which never appeared instead they was kind Mm. of reborn as little micro bills that were given to individual
1: backbenchers and that's why they call them handout bills because you know government ministers will hand out drafts to people who do well MPs who do well in the ballot in the hope that they'll take those through the government doesn't have to include those and and manage them as well as its other big bills. But Um, I think
2: it might get a bit uncomfortable if this becomes a kind of overspill for the government's own programme of legislation. I mean, if you think back to the kind of heroic era of private members' bills in the 1960s, when private members' bills legalised abortion, decriminalised homosexuality... Those were issues that the government of the day didn't really want to touch with a barge pole yeah. and devoutly hoped not to have to take a position on, although actually in the end both of those measures got a bit of covert support from the then Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins. But it was something that was left to individual MPs to take an initiative on. And if the government's just going to sort of gobble up private members' Mm. bill times with its own measures, and possibly with the implicit threat that if you want to do something else, we might not be sympathetic and we might find ways to block you, Mm. then the whole process just becomes a bit of a sort of adjunct.
1: Yeah. So, I mean the last session as you say, there were 16 they were 16 ballot bills. So there's three different types of private members bills. We're talking about ballot bills on a a private members bill Friday. But there's also what we call 10 minute rule bills and presentation bills, so different rules apply. Um, but that in total, I think it's 24 private members' bills went through in the last session, which is the largest number Phenomenal. since the 1960s, I think.
2: Phenomenal, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you get barely a handful of bills, and some of them are on quite anodyne technical matters mm. that uh, basically get through because no one's that interested in, in in opposing them. But there are also, as I say, a group of Conservative MPs out there who sometimes take a pretty dim view of private members' bills. The lead figure these days is uh, Sir Christopher Chope, yes. who is is seen as the person you have to go and see if you've got a private. <laughs> <laughs> member's bill, see if you can square it with side. him. What, yeah. what concessions would you like, Sir Christopher? And he, he I think he rather enjoys his moment in the sun. Takes a fairly dim view of people complaining about the process uh, if, if he feels they don't understand properly what they should have done before, which is basically consult him.
1: And the problem with it is it gets a bit embarrassing. Particularly uh, for the government and the Conservative Party. He's a Conservative MP. Because sometimes, you know, there are bills that um, attracts a lot of support that people feel very strongly about there there's the, cross party support for them
2: there was the Vera Hobhouse bill yeah. to, to ban upskirting, yeah. taking photographs up women's skirts which Sir Christopher got up and objected to, because there's there's another little, little facet of this process which is sometimes you can actually get a bill passed with a formal second reading there's a moment at 2.30 where the titles of all the bills that haven't been debated that day but were on the agenda are read out and if no one shouts object they're then deemed to have been read a second time that is they've got past that first debate without anyone actually having to debate them at all hardly a word said and they can go off to committee for detailed scrutiny and so christopher got up and shouted object when vera Hophouse's uh, mm. upskirting bill came up at that point and he got a lot of a program for it. You know, it really was quite a backlash.
1: Also the genital mutilation bill which um, similarly he—he, he, I think it was he that objected to it. Um, you end up in a situation with that those that it's so embarrassing that the government actually picks them up as government bills and takes them through under its own auspices so you get this sort of reverse that you know we've been talking about government handing out bills to backbenchers to to Mm. do sometimes it happens in the reverse way because of the objections of individual mps that you know reputationally are damaging to the house of commons because it's popular business lots of campaign groups lots of campaign organizations get behind these bills lots of people are watching what happens on a Friday debate to see what's going to happen to the bill that they're interested in and then they look at what's happening with the proceedings it's difficult to understand particularly if you can't see you're watching it on telly you can't see all the things that are going on in the chamber and see the orchestration of of, of the events and the, the procedures um, and it's just it's just confusing
2: and sometimes also it's it's done in quite a jocular way which I think yeah. puts the back up of people who, who would just quite support whatever measure it is that's in front of the House at the time and they're, yeah. they're getting quite offended by that behaviour and I think that's one of the changes over the last 20 years or so is that many more people now watch parliamentary proceedings and they don't like what they see but the other point there that you made is, is that the government can sometimes pick up bills that have been proposed as private members bills that perhaps haven't quite made it through the process even without sort of malign interference by opponents and decide that there's a good idea there that they want to put into law and um, we've been talking to one MP who had exactly that happen to her. Well, to get an idea of the kind of things that happen when private members' bills are proposed, we've come to the office of Nikki Aitken, MP for the cities of London and Westminster, in 1 Parliament Street, one of Parliament's office buildings. Nikki, you have pursued a bill to try and sort out and licence and regulate rickshaws. Being an MP in, in this particular area, I imagine that's quite a big issue. So first of all, tell us, what's the issue that you're trying to deal with?
3: Well, rickshaws or pedicabs are prolific in the West End around Oxford Street and Soho and Marlborough and places like that. And they're not regulated, which means we don't know how safe the drivers are, how safe the vehicles are. They don't have to be checks. There's no insurance. And also, there's no fare regulation. So we've heard many, many stories of tourists in particular being ripped off £400 to do a mile journey. They're the only form of public transport not regulated. We've got black cabs, we've got Uber, we've got private hire. Um, there's, a, there's a loophole that I wanted to fix.
2: And talk us through the, the kind of the case history of this, because this is a bill that's had several different iterations and you had to go last year in the last round of private members' bills to try and get something, and now it's a government bill. Tell, tell us the story.
3: Well, it's been a labour of love, Mark. It was first brought to Parliament by my predecessor, Mark Field, it fell. Then Paul Scully, the MP for Sutton, took it on. It fell. Then I came to Parliament in 2019. And the first thing I did was I was I tabled this bill, because I know it's such a major issue for my constituents, the noise and the, the antisocial behaviour, etc. So I did my first member's bill. Obviously, um, you know, with the system it is, one person can object and it falls. And it has got cross-party support. And I've got support from the London Mayor, TfL will do the administration. There's nothing but one person can just object, and he did. He will remain nameless. You <laughs>
2: <laughs> the curse of choke.
3: Well, you might say that, Mark, I couldn't possibly comment. And then I did it again, because it's so important to do. And again, it fell. Boris Johnson was very, very supportive of it. Having been Mayor of London, he knew the problems. He then decided to put it in the transport bill, so lifted my bill and put it in the transport bill in the last Queen's speech, That fell when he fell and then I started again trying to persuade Rishi Sunak's administration to take it on and finally in the King's speech, much to my shock but delight, the King said there was going to be a bill to deal with the scourge of pedicabs in London. So it's been long in gestation Mm. Um, other
1: previous MPs had also taken it up and tried to sort of run with the issue you've now made progress the ballot's been held for the private members bills for this session what would you say in terms of advice to members who've come a high in the ballot about how they need to think about their bill and what sort of strategies they need to pursue to influence
3: the process make sure it's read the day that Christopher Chope's not in parliament perhaps um but being serious look the higher you are up on the ballot the more chance you've got because of the way it works with the time it's about time you've got to get it debated on the floor of the house of commons that's what i learned and quite often it was a nail-biting friday afternoon and the clock would be going and its business stops dead at two thirty, and i'd be there at 10 past two and i still hadn't been called but that's what i would say to people i say get a subject that is going to not just make a really good law but also promote an issue that you think really needs promoting or needs to be highlighted because again that's what i think is one of the strengths of the private members bill is that it can be used to really bring an issue that's not always discussed on the floor of the house to public attention and maybe get things done another way
2: and you're a classic example of this i suppose having had several goes through the private members bill route the government's now picked up your proposal tried to pick it up a couple of times, in fact, and then dropped it again in various ways. Is there any kind of secret or alchemy behind that? Did you pull strings in Downing Street? No Did wish. you, you know, manipulate the the, the the SPAD system or something to get this game?
3: Look, what I've learned, and I'm a first-term MP, and I've learned that being a backbench MP, you can really you can influence, but it's about talking to the right people at the right time with the right argument not just going bing bang bush you've got to go out there and you've got to make your argument and it was obvious why we needed the pedicabs bill to be passed because passengers aren't safe women aren't safe to use these rickshaws at the moment so i just found the right advisors in number 10 sat down with them they really understood it spoke to the transport minister and the secretary of state they were supportive obviously I guess it's by stealth. You just don't give up. And people who know me in politics know I never give up. If I really care about something, I don't give up. And obviously it's now worked.
2: Well, those are the do's. Any don'ts?
3: Again, it's about not trying to be too aggressive. It's about making the argument and ensuring that you do it in in the right way. You can obviously use media coverage, and I've had a lot of media coverage over the years about this issue. But the right media coverage, not criticizing or having a go at the government being a critical friend but being constructive I think that's the way you get it I mean, I think one of my former Westminster councillors Christabel Flight, always said to me sugar goes a lot further than vinegar and I've really learned that it's really true you've got to really be positive and constructive
1: You've talked about how difficult it was in terms of the, the procedures on a Friday. You know, the risk of the bill was going to get talked out, you, one MP can object to it and that, that can stymie its progress. Given your experience, and obviously as a backbencher, that opportunity to take up an issue for constituents is a great sort of legislative opportunity and a rare one. Do you think the procedures should be changed to give the bills a sort of a fairer
3: wind? Well, I, I, I find it really difficult that one MP out of 650 can stop a private member's bill, particularly if it's got support, whether it's got ministerial support or cross-party support. I think that is a rather strange way to work. And it's very frustrating. You know, I don't know how that would work, how you could change that. But I think, you know, there has to be some sort of vote if one person doesn't want it to happen, they can't talk it out. The problem is they people talk it out. So they're still talking at two thirty, the guillotine goes and your bill is then just basically thrown on, onto the fire or to the next time you, you can get it tabled. And it's kind of like it's like a roller coaster, which never stops. So I think that's the one thing is is other members shouldn't be able to talk out a private member's bill. They if, if they don't like it, they should they should call a vote.
2: Nikki Akin, thanks very much for joining us on the pod.
3: Pleasure to be with you, thank you.
1: So Mark, I think we've just got time to cover the fact that in the last 24 hours, 56 Labour MPs rebelled against Keir Starmer's line on the King's speech vote and the question of whether or not to support a motion for a ceasefire in Gaza. It's a big rebellion, possibly his biggest yet, eight frontbench resignations as a result, then two Parliamentary private secretaries, two bag carriers have also gone. Big name among them, Jess Phillips, has has left the front bench. What do you make of this?
2: It's pretty painful stuff. The parallel that immediately occurs to me is is what happened during the big vote on the Iraq War in in the Blair era, twenty odd years ago now. But it was a moment where Later on, those who'd rebelled against the government felt they could sort of sleep soundly in their beds. And those MPs who'd kind of, against their better judgment, had gone along with the party leadership, in many cases felt very, very uncomfortable and had a bad taste in their mouth and were actually then more trouble to their party leadership. Mm. As a result of having been sort of frogmarched through the lobbies in a particular way, the kind of emotional fallout on that comes back on them.
1: This was a motion on the King's Speech, on the domestic legislative agenda. And actually then, the, you know, all the discussion around the vote was about this, a ceasefire in Gaza. So over a foreign
2: which, policy issue was basically tacked on. Yeah,
1: all. around which, you know, how much influence does the UK government really have, particularly when it's not evident that either side in that conflict want a ceasefire, at, 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 certainly at the moment. And still um,
2: less how much influence does the UK opposition have.
1: In, indeed. And on the other side of it, then there was sort of, well, There's also a debate here about Keir Starmer's leadership and obviously given Labour's problems in relation to anti-Semitism in recent years it's a sensitive issue. So there's sort of arguments about is this what they should be focusing on in terms of these votes on the King's speech should they have been focused more on the domestic legislative agenda. But as you say you know they have to think about their constituencies as well and for these MPs quite a lot of them have got significant Muslim constituents who are inundating them with concerns about what's happening in the Middle East and for, for some of them, you know, it just is a matter of conscience. What I found
2: odd about this in a way was that it almost became less about what position the UK should take about events in Gaza and almost more, it seems to have transmogrified into an issue about Keir Starmer's party management. And is he a strong leader who can make his troops vote the way he wants to? And is he should he be taking a different position? And I, I just wonder if we're kind of almost overlooking the substance of the issue to get into the parliamentary game playing around it
1: I think though that's that's almost inevitable given where we are unfortunately because of the, the way the media play this and I think it's it's not unrelated to the proximity of the election and the fact that you know is Keir Starmer going to be the next prime minister and not to continue this line but one of the questions I think is what is he now going to do you know he's lost these people from his front bench are they going to be permanently exiled until the election or do they get back in fairly short order? If not, he's going to need a, a fairly substantial reshuffle himself now. What approach is he going to take to party discipline? Is he going to be looking ahead to the, to the general election, looking ahead to the prospect of a Labour government? They're going to have an enormous number of challenges. They'll need unity and discipline. Is he going to basically say now, look, there is a price to pay? If you do want to, to rebel against the whip, you are going to pay a price.
2: Potentially there are hundreds of would-be Labour MPs out there, candidates in winnable seats, looking at this, and I imagine it would inform their behaviour if they were to get elected, if they felt the government was just going to sort of wave indulgently, if a Labour-led yeah. government was going to wave indulgently at them and say, well, all right, you, know, you, you have your moment. You don't want a permanently soured faction, or at least more of one than you already have, out there who regard you as the enemy. And at the same time, as you say, you've got to have a bit of party discipline to hold together through what are certainly going to be very difficult times if there's a Labour government the other side of the next election.
1: Yeah. Okay, Mark, well, I think we'll leave it there and uh, we'll wait to see what Keir Starmer does in the coming days and weeks. (laughs) Well, that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands.
2: And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost.
1: And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm.
2: What do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in by carrier pigeon. (laughs)
1: Well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMUQ.
2: We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament.
1: And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard Society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk slash pm or find us on social media at Hansard Society.
2: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.